These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today, we reach the end of two things. First, now that great King Tidhalia IV sits upon the throne in Hattusha, we're now solidly in the final period of Hittite history, and the Empire will be falling before this episode is done, even if the episode does have to go a bit long to fit it all in. Second, this is also the end of Season 1 of the Oldest Stories podcast. Now, there will be some more discussion about what the latter of these means at the end of the episode, but for the most part, you can expect no further regular episode for at least a few months. The best way to get notified of when the show resumes, plus any bonus episodes that may make their way out in the interim, is to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you prefer, or on Facebook at the Oldest Stories show page, or on YouTube, and I do apologize for some of the uh, late uploads there lately, but things should all get back on track for Season 2 at some undetermined point in the future. Also, when this show returns, there will be a special reader question and answer episode. Details for how you can get your question about the Bronze Age Near East answered will be in the show notes and at the end of the episode. Anyway, the fall of the Hittite Empire is a large and somewhat odd topic. You would think that it would naturally follow that if we continue on our narrative, at some point, the tale would tell of the Empire's eventual defeat. But that's not actually the case. Indeed, if you read Trevor Bryce's book, Kingdom of the Hittites, which is pretty much the best and only generally accessible work covering the kingdom's full history, then you get the tale of the reign of Tuthalia IV, where there are some interesting ups and downs, and then suddenly, when everything seems to be going more or less fine, the empire just collapses and is completely overrun, and society changes overnight. This isn't to criticize Mr. Bryce, he is a knowledgeable and careful historian, patiently pulling the threads apart while not overstretching the facts with his imagination. I, on the other hand, have never considered myself so restricted, and so, while I will be speculating a bit to try and connect things that may or may not be truly related, hopefully we'll be able to paint a bit fuller picture of why this once major power appears to vanish overnight, despite facing things that, from a certain perspective, really seem like things they've faced before. They've had political uncertainty in the past, and they've had, you know, all sorts of problems just throughout the years. Famines, floods, disasters. But this is the one that'll end the game for good. And one of the things we need to look at while we follow the strict narrative of Tudhalia's reign is some of the systemic changes that have been creeping almost imperceptibly into our story in the years particularly of Tudhalia's father, Hattusili III. Now, we did look at how the internal politics of the kingdom are becoming increasingly shaky, and the tale of the jostling for the throne is a part of the final decades here. But like I said, the truth is we've seen the Hittite throne unstable in the past, and the empire was not only able to overcome it, but to come out stronger in the end. And so while instability will be playing its part in the empire's collapse, we'll be seeing that it could not have been the whole story. 
something a bit quieter and a bit more sinister is the likelihood that the Hittite Empire was, for much of its final century, wrestling with chronic food shortages. It's something that doesn't really show up when you follow the historical narrative too closely, at least not until the very end. But when looking at archaeological reports of Anatolia throughout the late Bronze Age, we see persistent signs of food instability. The soil of Anatolia is rocky and thin, and really only certain areas along the many small waterways can be profitably farmed. In a good year, you can grow a wider variety of foods than can your neighbors in Egypt and Mesopotamia, giving the Anatolian peasant perhaps a healthier diet than the average Babylonian subject. But in the bad years, summer droughts and winter freezes can take your whole harvest, and maybe a few of the animals as well for good measure. And in the Bronze Age, one bad year can set you back more than ten good years will get you ahead. If you're lucky, you fall heavily in debt to stay alive, lose a good chunk of your material wealth in terms of stores and animals, and maybe your structures and fields will be destroyed by folks from the next village who are starving who even more than you are. If you're not lucky, you'll go up to meet the Thousand Gods of the Hittite Empire. But following the eternal treaty signed by Hattusili III with Pharaoh Ramesses down in Egypt, we start seeing regular correspondence between the two nations detailing how Hattusha was regularly purchasing Egyptian grain. Now, in a way, this makes sense. Grain will be one of Egypt's most famous exports well into Roman times, and the same Nile that fed Rome during the Roman Empire fed Hattusha during the end of the Bronze Age. Except that Hattusha, while it is growing during this final flourishing of Hittite power, it's not growing like Rome or Babylon or the other great cities of antiquity ever grew. It was small for a world capital, only a few tens of thousands of inhabitants, and the scale of grain imports pretty quickly indicates to all of their neighbors that there's something seriously wrong in the Hittite Empire. One of our best sources for this food shortage is the city of Ugarit, on the Syrian coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Ugarit has been a loyal Hittite vassal for a while now, as well as a major mercantile port connecting Egypt, Anatolia, and the Euphrates River together. Here, in the final decades before the Bronze Age collapse, we have records of both the Hittite kings discussing the various food shipments they were expecting, and we also have records that Ugarit itself has become a substantial food importer as well. In modern scholarship, there's essentially no debate that there was some sort of food shortage in and around Anatolia in the final decades before the Bronze Age collapse. What is debated, though, is how severe, how long, and how over how great a geographical span. Some think there's no evidence for anything more than a few scattered, localized famines, each lasting maybe a few years though specifically affecting regions around Hattusha and Ugarit in particular. I personally think that the food shortages were probably much more systemic than that, and there are two causes within the Hittite Empire in particular that seem to have caused it. 
Ever since Shipililiuma 150 years ago, and quite possibly even before that, it's been standard Hittite policy to grab people from the conquered periphery or from regions just outside the borders and relocate them into the heartland of the empire. This was partly to stem the threat of revolt, but it was also meant to increase the available manpower in central Anatolia. After well over a century of this, you may think that they were running into the problem of having brought too many people into the land of Hattie and other core territories, and now they're struggling to feed them all. But in fact, what we see is that the Hittite Empire has the opposite problem. The Hittite kings struggle with persistent manpower shortages, just as they have throughout history. And even though they, on average, raise troops and go on some campaign or another every second or third year, each time they do so, they're required to balance the needs of manning the army with the need for having men out in the fields, sowing and harvesting crops. You might wonder where all these imported people have gone, and I really don't have a good answer for you, except that, I mean, they must all be dead. Maybe the endless warfare of the Hittite state exacted a far bloodier toll than modern historians have yet to realize, and the tens or sometimes hundreds of thousands of imported people were required just to make up the manpower losses in battle. Or, perhaps Central Anatolia could never support large populations with Bronze Age agriculture, and Malthusian famines have been bringing the land back down to carrying capacity, no matter how hard the kings try and fight against that reality. The truth is that, at this point, we just don't know what's going on demographically within the Hittite Empire, and it'll take quite a lot more archaeology to really start answering this crucial question. But regardless of manpower issues, which have been plaguing the Hittite Empire pretty much since day one, there was almost certainly some sort of climate shift. It was once thought that there may have been a big volcano, or perhaps a series of volcanoes and earthquakes, or perhaps even a meteor impact, or some other suitably exciting disaster which shifted the entire region's climate. Nowadays, there really isn't very much support for a singular exciting disaster, not even a whole bunch of, say, earthquakes. There's no ash layers from a volcano or meteor debris, and, and even the earthquake evidence is really heavily debated. But looking holistically at the entire Mediterranean region and the Near East, it seems quite likely that there was some sort of climate shift. Not a universal drought or anything like that, but the rain patterns may have begun to favor some regions that had historically been marginal, while disfavoring others, such as Anatolia. We'll discuss some population shifts here in a bit, and I think it's not crazy to see shifts in climate as a potential driver of these shifts in population. Anyway, keeping in mind the background of political instability and possible food shortages, the reign of Tudhalia IV is actually going to be quite long and, by some definitions, fairly successful. 
One foundation of what success he does achieve is the assistance of his family, particularly his mother Pudahepa, who, like in Hattushili's reign, will continue to exert a powerful influence over her son, and typically a productive one. We usually see these reigning queens as negative influences, at least in the histories of the ancient world, but Pudahepa seems to have been overall a good influence on the Hittite Empire. Additionally, Tadhalia did reach out to his many brothers, half-brothers, and cousins, all of whom had potential claims on the throne, and ensured that they were brought into respectable positions and treated fairly. Uh, somewhat early in Tudhalia's reign, the viceroy of Karchemish died. As one of the key cities of the empire, Karchemish was ruled by a branch of the Hittite royal family, and with his mother's help, he oversaw the fair distribution of the ruler's estate. He also seems to have visited an oracle to get the advice of the gods on how the sons of the f deposed former king, Urhiteshub, should be compensated to bring them to peace. Though in this case, it seems the gods or the political situation never allowed that branch of the family to fully reconcile. Most crucial in all this family bonding was Kurunta, down in Tarhuntasha, a brother of the deposed Urhiteshub and cousin of Tudhalia. He's been stuck down in the south by Hattushili, and Tarhuntasha was turned into a semi-autonomous district, like what Hattushili himself had once run up in the north. Tudhalia now follows this up by traveling south to meet with Kurunta personally, and not only confirming his appointment, but dramatically expanding it, reducing his tax burdens still further, growing his territory, and confirming Tarhuntasha as a permanent vice-royalty, equal with the cities of Aleppo and Karchemish, putting him on the second-highest shelf in the empire, below only the great king himself in terms of honor and authority and they seem to have had a certain level of personal friendship. For when Karunta falls ill, Tudhalia personally writes to Pharaoh Ramesses, requesting not just that a doctor be sent, but also requesting particular medicines for Karunta's treatment, which Ramesses, in the spirit of eternal friendship, obligingly sends along. This cutting-edge treatment was apparently enough to save Karunta's life, for the Lord of Tarhuntasha still has a role to play in our story going forward. But while Tenhalia was making nice with the nobles, the other of his father's legacies was only getting worse. When we were last in the West, we saw that Hattushili tried to plaster over a defeat with diplomacy, apparently hoping that making nice would have a more lasting impact than making war. However, peace was given a chance, and it turned out to be pretty bad after all. The Ahiawans have apparently only increased their meddling in the region, and Hattusha is increasingly losing control. Tadhalia was forced to take action, one year with a campaign into the Luka lands and another year into Kaskin territory to handle that seemingly endless threat. Still, though we know that there was fighting, we don't have a clear sense of whether or not the Hittites were able to score a lasting victory, which honestly likely means that no victories were found there. 
Dedalia's possibly fruitless efforts may have helped to destabilize the already precarious situation in a western vassal state called the Seha Riverlands. Now, we last saw the Seha Riverlands back in Mershali II's reign. A fellow named Manapatar Hunda had rebelled, and Mershali was on his way to crush the rebellion, when Manapatar Hunda's elderly mother came out in front of the entire army to beg for mercy for her son. Mershali was apparently moved by this display, and allowed the Seha Riverlands to return to the empire without any penalty, a move that was rewarded not only by the continuing loyalty of Manapatar Hunda, but also by the loyalty of his son Masturi. Well, I mean, Masturi did back Hattusili in his coup, but it seems like that counts as loyalty in some circles since he backed the right side there. Anyway, by the time Tudhalia came to the throne, Masturi of the Seha Riverlands was old. Old and childless. Remember when Hattusili had asked Ramesses to send a doctor capable of making a 50- or 60-year-old couple conceive a child? And Ramesses rightly mocked him as needing a miracle worker, not a doctor. Yeah, that was on behalf of Masturi, who was married to the king's aged sister at the time. The treatment was clearly unsuccessful, because at around this point in Tudhalia's reign, Masturi dies of old age and has no child to inherit his throne. The details are obscure, but it seems an agitator backed by the Ahiyawans, the Mycenaean Greeks, named Tarhunoradu, took the throne and immediately led the Seha Riverland into rebellion against Tetusha. This was a major crisis moment for Tudhalia. Hittite control of the West would fall apart completely if the crucial Seha River was allowed to defect. And this time, he's able to overcome the challenge and crush Tarhunaradu's rebellion, transporting a large number of prisoners to the core region of Hatti itself and restoring the throne to some distant relative of the deceased Masturi. The Seha Riverland Rebellion was one of those cases where Tudhalia could have lost a lot had he failed to achieve victory. But in victory, all he really wins here is the right to stay in the game. Knowing what we know about history, even just staying in is a pretty big win here, for the Empire could well have fallen 25 years early following this crisis. I have been pretty harsh in my assessment of Tudhalia's character, and I still don't consider him anywhere close to the best Hittite kings, but he definitely manages to score a few solid wins in his career that will keep the Empire going, even past his own death, which a less competent ruler would likely not have managed to do. For Tudhalia's next big win... It isn't clear to what extent he got lucky or took an active role in events, partly because we have so little information about some pretty significant changes in the western region. The town of Milawanda, which is now called Milawata on its way to gaining the later name of Miletus, has been the primary Ahiawan-aligned stronghold on the Anatolian coastline for a few generations now. It was Turkish Nawa, a vassal king from the nearby region of Mira, who put together the troops to finally capture the city and kick the Greeks out of their stronghold. 
He may have had some small amount of Hittite support, but honestly, he may have done it completely on his own, and later Tidhalia simply claimed a token amount of credit. Anyway, a single stroke, the Ahiawan threat was severely curtailed, and matters in Western Anatolia are going to settle down for a bit after this. Of course, Tudhalia had no way of knowing that the Greeks would simply start to quiet down, and so Turkish Nawa was rewarded with something that has been going so well for the Empire lately, a semi-autonomous viceroyalty. From his seat in Mira, he would control the region around Milawanda, all the way up north to the region around the city of Troy, over which there has apparently been some more small fighting. The exact extent of this northwest Anatolian viceroyalty is unclear, but it's pretty sure that for the first time in a while, the main portion of the Hittite Empire had nothing to fear from the west. Tarhuntasha would cover threats in the south, and Mira would cover threats in the north. However, this new viceroyalty was different in one key way from the previous four that have been established. Turkish Nawa is not part of the Hittite royal family, not even distantly related as far as we can tell, and does not seem to have bothered marrying in. In fact, the very few scraps of communication we have between Tudhalia and Turkish Nawa strongly suggest that, that there was a very different relationship between Mira and the other vice royalties. How much did Turkish Nawa really need the Hittite Empire, compared to the inestimable favor he did for Tudhalia's prestige and legitimacy by remaining nominally within that empire? When the relationship gets tested, how hard will Mira and the subjects it was holding in trust for Hattusha fight for its overlord? As it would so happen, however, Tudhalia and the Hittite Empire would see their greatest stroke of luck yet, and the loyalty of Mira would never actually be tested, at least not in recorded history. Right around the time that the Ahiawans lost control of Milawanda, Tudhalia was also beginning a campaign of trade embargoes, trying to block them out of every Near Eastern port that he could manage. Now, the effectiveness of this embargo is debated, but what's not debated is that Mycenaean goods stop reaching the Near East around this time. This is because of all the civilizations in the famous Bronze Age collapse, we see the Mycenaean Greeks affected first. The Greeks themselves would later speak of a great invasion of semi-barbaric northerners called the Dorians, led by the descendants of mighty Hercules, who had been promised kingship over the Peloponnese by Zeus back in mythic times. Modern scholars are pretty sure that there was not actually a coordinated invasion of demigods, but without a doubt, the Mycenaeans chose this very moment to begin their collapse. I won't go too much in the details of it, because Greek matters are sort of at the periphery of our story in any case, but suffice it to say that though the details are heavily debated by modern scholars, it's pretty clear that there was at least some level of destructive violence on the Greek mainland, accompanied probably by food shortages, a collapse of trade and high craftsmanship, and large population movements. This looks sufficiently like what we see in the broader Bronze Age collapse that my own personal assumption is that the Greeks are experiencing what the Levant will see just a few short decades early. We even have a treaty attesting to the moment that it happened, 
suggesting it was quite likely a very sudden power shift. A draft letter that Tadhalia was sending to one of his vassals, Shaushkamua of Amaru, sees Tadhalia listing all the kings he considered at that point equal to himself, including the Egyptian pharaoh, the kings of Babylon and Assyria, and the scribe also wrote the king of Ahiawa, but then crossed it out, indicating that it was to be omitted from the final draft of the treaty. So clearly at the beginning of this treaty process, Mycenaean Greece was still seen as a major concern. Then, with the loss of Milawanda and the general sudden silence of the Greeks, word must have reached Hattusha that the Ahiawans were no longer something anyone needed to worry about. Now, with hindsight, we can probably say that Tidhalia should have taken this as a worrying sign and started trying to investigate and prepare his kingdom to avoid the same fight. But in fact, at about the same time, Tudhalia had his attention drawn in the opposite direction, to the east. We have thought that we had long ago finished hearing about the Mitanni, and for sure we pretty much have. All that's left is that the province of Hanigalbat and a few folks who claim descent to what used to be the Mitanni royal line, including the final pretender Shatuwara II. In trying to either win back his kingdom, or perhaps simply to survive, Shatuwara, who is probably really not in control of anything at this point, played a strange game of insisting that he was loyal to both the Hittites and Assyrians. Tudhalia, new to the throne, appears to have believed Shatuwara's duplicitous pronouncements at first. But when his vassals bordering Hagalbat alerted him to the game that the Mitanni pretender was playing, Tudhalia sent an angry letter, complaining that Shatuwara was likely to start a war between the two great powers. Shatuwara, for his part, pretty much acknowledged this, and as it would turn out, it was not Tudhalia's wrath he should have been fearing, but Shalmaneser of Assyria, who came in and probably crushed the last gasp of Mitanni, along with it, seems a small amount of Hittite assistance was sent, and destroyed. Now, this could have been an omen of very bad things to come, but Tudhalia seems to have considered the omen cancelled when Shalmaneser died shortly afterwards, leaving the throne to his son to Kultinanerta. This was Tudhalia's chance to turn over a new leaf with the Assyrians, and friendship was offered in glowing terms to the new king, which Tukulti-Ninurta responded to in kind. At the same time that Tukulti-Ninurta was sending pleasant words over the border, he was also, it seems, sending raiders to soften up that very same border, and was also preparing a pretty massive campaign to grab the either unaffiliated or loosely Hittite-aligned Hurrian territories on the Assyrian-Hittite border. These lands held important strategic mountain passes that led from Anatolia to the Euphrates River, as well as a number of valuable copper mines, and were conquered almost before Tudhalia even received word that the talk of friendship had ended and the offensive had begun. Tadali appears to have initially panicked upon hearing this, renegotiating at least two treaties with major vassals, Ugarit and Amaru, to include trade embargoes against Assyria and demands for more troops from each. 
we must assume that there are probably some more lost treaties with other vassals saying similar things around this time. Tudalia even petitioned the gods, promising to build three great monuments in the gods' honor if they delivered victory to him. But through this clear note of panic, the great king did manage to get a pretty sizable army mustered and the logistics handled for what would be a strategically challenging march into the deep mountains of the east. It was clear that Tikulti Ninurta was headed towards a region that the Hittites called Nairi and the Mesopotamians called Nehraya to subdue some 40 semi-independent kings living in the valleys of those northern mountains. Letters continued to go back and forth, with Tudhalia asking Tikulti Ninurta to simply stop attacking, and with Tikulti Ninurta asking Tudhalia to just not defend the land he was about to attack. Uh, neither king really had a very good case to make to the other side, and the two armies ended up clashing somewhere in Nehraya, in an uncertain year, at an uncertain place, with uncertain forces, and using uncertain tactics. Tikulti Ninurta and his Assyrian army beat back what may have been the largest Hittite army assembled since the Battle of Kadesh, and took control of Nehraya before returning home to Asher. Tudhalia retreated in disgrace, attempting to salvage his dignity by firing off letters to some of the vassals who had not managed to make it to the battle. We have one from the crucial border region of Isua, which contains a pretty scathing rebuke of the lord of Isua for not showing up for the battle and leaving Tudhalia to retreat alone and unsupported from the catastrophe. Now, we don't know why the Lord of Isua abandoned the Hittite army, but likely it's related to the overall crisis of legitimacy that the regime is suffering. Or, perhaps more pragmatically, the Isuans fully expected the ascendant Assyrians to win, and were hoping not to suffer too much when Tikulti Ninurta's army came marching through. Whatever the reason, Tudhalia never sanctioned Isua beyond this nasty letter, probably because the Lord of Isua was in fact correct that the Empire simply lacked the resources and stability to discipline him, or even to seriously risk angering this key border vassal. Ultimately, what could have been a pivotal moment in history became a lucky break for the Hittite Empire, as Tikulti Ninurta more or less got distracted with other priorities, and ended up bogging Mesopotamia down in a draining quagmire in Babylon which left Tudhalia, though the loser in this conflict, in the odd position of finding himself finally at peace with all of his neighbors. The Greeks were collapsing, the Assyrians were busy, the Babylonians were busy with the Assyrians, and the Egyptians were content to maintain the eternal peace treaty. The Cascans were still attacking, but we can hardly expect anything less from them. And so, Tidhalia had some time to focus on building up the Hittite Empire and stabilizing it. On one front, he did this by attempting to fix his relationship with the gods, who were by this point clearly upset about something. Likely working in conjunction with his mother, it soon became apparent that the thousands of cults, temples, and shrines that had proliferated throughout the empire over the last few centuries had grown like untended bushes and needed a skilled gardener to take them and make them a bit more manageable. 
And so Tudhalia himself appears to have led an initiative to inventory every single cult, shrine, temple, ritual, and worship practice within the Empire. And a massive census of the gods that was almost certainly part of his mother's drive to reform the faith was undertaken. And even though international trade appears to be collapsing right about now, what with embargoes against Assyria and Greece, and both Greece and Babylon in the process of collapse, and despite what looks like a huge crisis involving both famine and political weakness and defeat in battle, the accumulated power and wealth of the Hittite Empire was still enough for Tadhalia to pair this religious census with an equally ambitious rebuilding program focused not on making a few prestigious monuments, but on rebuilding and embellishing the smaller temples scattered all over the empire. If the Hittite Empire wasn't only decades away from the final curtain falling, this could have transformed the land of a thousand gods into a remarkable religious pioneer. And thus, while Tudhalia and Pudahepa's religious program is in fact a sign of vigorous and intelligent rulership, it will prove to be completely misaligned with what they end up needing as the final crisis approaches and the effort will ultimately be stillborn. On another front, Tudhalia appears to have conquered Alashia. This simple claim is actually far more curious than it appears. You may recall that Alashia is the kingdom which dominates the island of Cyprus. As far as we know, Alashia has been quietly part of the Hittite sphere for perhaps a century now. And while it isn't clear if it was an ally or a vassal or at any particular point in time, there's no indication that it ever fell out of the Hittite dominion during this period. However, it clearly must have been more distant than Tudhalia preferred, and lacking frontiers on which easy conquest could per be performed, Alashia was apparently the last easy target. Also, given that a number of major copper mines had just been conquered by the Assyrians, Cypriot copper may have been necessary to maintain the Hittite wealth needed to continue purchasing food from Egypt. But Cyprus is an island, and while the Mesopotamians, Egyptians, and the people of the Levant have always been masters of the rivers and seas, the Hittite Empire has always been a continental one. Until this time, we don't hear about any Hittite navy, not even a merchant fleet, which is part of why the Greeks have been able to move with impunity along the western coast. Where did Tithalia get his fleet? As some speculate, he may have bought it from Ugarit, which was a fairly significant vassal with a fairly significant port. Others think he may have had it constructed just for the occasion, or perhaps because the very first word of the Sea Peoples were arriving, and he felt he needed some way to operate on the water. Whatever the case, the conquest itself was simple enough once they managed to land, and it marked Tithalia as a king still capable of expanding the empire's borders, something his father was noticeably unable to manage while on the throne. This victory, and the sea power involved in securing it, would soon prove to be important, as new threats are rising from the west. Everywhere throughout the Mediterranean world, from Spain to Sardinia and Sicily to northern Greece to the inner deserts of the Near East, groups of people are starting to pick up their possessions and move to new places. 
While I personally think that climate shifts in the region are a probable cause, it should be noted that climate isn't the only necessary cause. To take an example from another time in history, the fall of the Roman Empire was accompanied by another mass migration of a huge array of peoples throughout the north end of Europe and Asia. It's looking increasingly likely that this entire barbarian horde had its roots in the defeat of the Xiongnu people by the Chinese, sending those steppe nomads west, who in turn moved another group west who pushed their neighbors in turn, and so on. This led to the entrance into the European stage of waves of Vandals, Goths, Huns, and many other so-called barbarian invaders. Similarly, we see the first appearances of the famous Sea Peoples around this time, and while they could have moved in response to conditions that first appeared in their original lands, such as a region-wide drought or political instability, they could also just as well have been responding to a complex and chaotic chain of events that happened somewhere completely invisible to the historical record. In Egyptian records, the famous and mysterious sea peoples are listed as Peleset, Tjeker, Shekelesh, Denyan, and Weshesh. Aside from these, the Sherdan, the Luka, the Ekwesh, Teresh, Libyans, Habiru, and Ahlamu are all mentioned as growing more active, mobile, and aggressive in this period. The Peleset are almost certainly the Egyptian name for the Philistines, who will start to appear in the historical books of the Old Testament. The Libyans are the people who live west of Egypt, many from the region of the modern-day nation of the same name. The Habiru and Ahlamu are groups from the inner deserts of Syria and Jordan, not properly sea peoples at all, though often lumped in here for having similar dynamics in certain respects. The Ekwesh and Teresh are possibly people from the Greek world. The latter may have been the founders of the later Etruscan civilization in the northern Italy, and the Ekwesh may be refugees from Mycenaean Greece. And the Sheklesh, Denyen, and Luka are all from south and west Anatolia. Other names are more difficult to solidly identify, and even the ones I've just named are open to some debate but it is speculated that some may have come from as far away as the coast of modern-day Spain, and some may be the ancestors of the Sardinians, Corsicans, and Sicilians. This is, in total, a massive laundry list of peoples from all over the Mediterranean and Near East, and even within each group, we know that there's a vast amount of diversity. We should not imagine, for example, that all of the Habiru were a single group with a single will and leader. Rather, that Habiru was the designation for a number of tribes that shared a set of similarities in terms of culture and lifestyle. And these tribes likely fought each other as much as they fought outsiders. Of course, this doesn't stop Pharaoh Ramesses III from claiming that all the Sea Peoples were a unified conspiracy, forming a single great army, a claim which has led historians into various dead ends for the last few decades. 
but it's increasingly clear that the Sea Peoples had very little internal coordination and represented a migration, at least as much as they did an invasion, and were in any case a very bottom-up movement of countless tiny tribes, rather than a top-down conquest led by a single figure or government. Ramesses' claim of a unified foe may, if we're feeling generous, have been true in a very limited sense. It is certainly possible that some of these tribes temporarily united against the great threat of the Nile armies, but it may also be the case that he was just exaggerating to make himself look more impressive, or even that he couldn't wrap his head around the decentralized non-organization of this dynamic movement and assume there must be some secret hand at work. Whatever the case, we can perhaps understand the Sea Peoples as a whole by looking specifically at the Luka in particular, since we happen to know these people a bit more intimately. The Luka are from the southwest corner of Anatolia, in the old days, we'd say that they're between the Luwian and Arzawan culture lands, but now at the end of the empire, the more relevant borders are to say between Tarhuntasha and Milawanda territory. In the future, the Greeks will know this region as Lycia. This little spot has only ever been conquered by the Hittites when they were at their peak, and tended to break away pretty quickly when the opportunity arose. Well, even though things have settled down a bit with the end of Mycenaean Greek meddling in Anatolia, the calm only lasts a short time. As Tudhalia's reign progresses, covering the last 30 years of the 1200s, population pressures increase in this mountainous region. Some of that may be famine caused by drought or by a loss of manpower in the various wars that we've been discussing. Population pressures may also have gone in the other direction, as sea peoples in the Great Migrations may have landed on the shores of Luka lands in search of something better than what they left behind. Also, there may have just been general population unrest for cultural or political reasons that are simply lost to history, and we'll probably never know them. Whatever the population pressures were, they involved some violence. Reading through the academic studies, there is this frustrating tendency for scholars to strongly defend one or the other absolutist position on the topic of violence in the late Bronze Age collapse. There was a view that these multiple population movements represented invasions in the classic sense, the Dorian invasion, the Sea People invasion, and so on very much in the sense that Ramesses and Greek myth both describe for this period. However, what archaeology has found is that these population movements were often accompanied by completely peaceful city abandonments, as well as sometimes peaceful transitions of culture. Because of this, it's been recently more common practice in scholarship to actively repudiate the invasion hypothesis in favor of a migration theory of mostly peaceful population movements. This is a necessary corrective step, for the invasion idea is by now clearly mistaken now that we have more archaeological data, but it may also be moving a bit too far. The Sea People and the other related population movements 
We're not pacifists. And even if not every city and town has a destruction layer around 1200 BCE, there are still places that definitely were destroyed by violence. And the cities that were more peacefully abandoned may have been threatened by the knowledge that some cities were destroyed to peacefully either just leave or to allow these new people in to settle down along with the natives. In that case, there is still violence, just not active violence. It's the threat of violence. Leading Hittiteologist Trevor Bryce has what currently seems to me like the best analogy. The Sea Peoples are not a peaceful migration, nor are they a unified invasion. Rather, they are much more like the post-apocalyptic raiders that are a staple of modern science fiction. Think Mad Max or Fallout. Now, for sure, the distance between agriculturalists and nomads was much smaller in the Bronze Age than it is today, but the idea of massive, unthinkable disruptions accompanying the end of an era is the common thread here. With all this in the background, we can see a bit more clearly that though Tidhalio is doing a reasonably good job of going through the motions expected of a Hittite great king, with his wars, his diplomacy, and his religious construction projects, whole communities are just getting up and leaving. They aren't just leaving the Hittite Empire, they're abandoning settled life completely and migrating to places that they likely only had vague understandings of or just had no idea at all. You know, just pick a direction and go. Here we go. The gods will sort it out. These cities are being calmly and peacefully abandoned, while at the same time other groups who have walked away from their lives in other parts of the world are arriving, sometimes violently, and displacing even more people. Tadalia is not just losing control of Western Anatolia at this point, it really isn't clear what he controls outside the central heartland and some loyal Syrian vassals. It used to be thought that Tudhalia ended his reign after 30 years by being kicked off the throne, but new evidence is showing that the story is a bit more interesting than that. Sometime either halfway through or in the back half of his reign, Tidhalia found himself under attack. The lord of Tarhuntasha, his cousin Korunta, who had been honored and feted and given his own semi-autonomous state to rule, seems to have suddenly decided that he deserved more and marched on Hattusha. The entire episode is very cloudy, and we, as we go past this point in Hittite history, things in general get extremely murky and poorly documented. But the city of Hattusha was partially destroyed by violence around the 1220s. Karunta reigned for approximately a year, maybe more, maybe less, but though he controlled Tarhuntasha and Hattusha, he does not seem to have been able to extend his control over the empire as a whole. And really, who knows how much empire was left for him to extend his control over at this point. And in short order, Tidhalia was able to retake the capital and put himself back on the throne. 
It used to be thought that it wasn't until Turhalia's son and heir that Karunta was kicked out of Hattusha, but archaeological evidence shows that Turhalia, in the last few years of his life, used the occasion of the massive destruction within the capital from the Civil War to rebuild Hattusha into its final glorious form, representing much of what a modern visitor to the site sees today. And this is absolutely remarkable to me. Whole towns are simply vanishing, getting up and walking somewhere else, while bands of raiders are pretty much everywhere. International trade has nearly collapsed, and two great powers, Babylon and Ahiao in Greece, have collapsed as well. Anatolia is starving, and yet Tudhalia still has the resources to build the capital city all the way back and in splendid form. This either tells us that the young king is profoundly irresponsible, or that the situation, at least in the Hittite heartland, was much better than our current picture suggests. Honestly, it really could be either one. Whatever else Tudhalia may have done during his quite long reign has been lost to history, as has much of the end of the story. In 1209 BCE, Tudhalia passes away, and the throne passes, seemingly without too much trouble, to his son Arnawanda III. Arnawanda has to deal with some sort of popular rebellion, as well as court backstabbing, but perhaps fortunately, this king died pretty quickly before he had much of a chance to get too stressed out about any of it. There appears to have been quite a lot of dispute about who should take the throne with the quick passing of the chosen heir, since Arnawanda himself had left no children of his own. And eventually, it was his younger brother, Shapililiuma II, who came out on top. We have a fragment of a justification by Shapililiuma for taking the throne, in which he says he didn't want to do it, but there wasn't any other choice. Whether this was self-serving rubbish from the winner of a bloody contest, or the genuine feeling of the final Hittite king as he ascended the throne of Hattusha for the last time, Shapililiuma would end up reigning for a short but uncertain number of years. Five to ten seems like a good estimate, though I've seen both much shorter and much longer proposed. During Shapililiuma's reign, it seems that he spent most of his time positioning his legitimacy within the capital. We do know that the famine got worse, and population movements accelerated, and the raiders hit more severely. But he spent his days sending letters to vassals, telling them that they need to be loyal, and constructing a grand mortuary monument to his father, which isn't typical Anatolian king behavior at all. In one monument, Shabililiuma claims to have reconquered a good chunk of western Anatolia, but we can't sure that he really means this. He could be saying that he fought groups of people who had migrated into the heartland from western Anatolia and kept them from, you know, completely overwhelming them. Or he could be saying that he extended his control over a badly depopulated patch of land. Or he could even take him at face value and assume he really did march troops into the chaotic western region, likely making things even worse for the people leaving there and accelerating the chaos. We do know that after Corunta's failed rebellion, the Hittite Empire was never able to reconquer Corunta's region of Tarhantasha, which will persist as an independent state until our records for the region vanish completely with the collapse.
And here, at the sunset of the Hittite story, we have an extremely peculiar little episode. Alashia decided that the Hittite Empire was, by this point, a sinking ship. And despite having been conquered by Tidhalia, they have by Shapiliuma's time declared independence. In response, Shapililiuma records himself as having taken the Hittite navy and engaged in a set of three sea battles in the eastern Mediterranean, then engaging in battles on the land. This one tiny mention raises so many questions that will probably never have satisfactory answers. This Hittite navy that suddenly appeared in Tidhalia's reign is now apparently fighting a major force... Who were they actually fighting? Was it native Cypriots, or were they attacking sea people who had invaded the Cyprus? Are these sailors, are they from Ugrit? Are they Hittite sailors? Are they Anatolians? Are they Egyptians? Who, where did these people even come from on both sides of this battle? Nobody knows. It's just nonsense. Whatever the case, this tiny victory was drowned out by a sea of chaos overwhelming the region at this time, and whatever hold Shapililiuma may have gotten over the island would be lost soon after. We don't actually know the end of the Hittite story. Or, I should say, we know the last page, but not the few pages leading up to it. At some point around the year 1200 BCE, Shapililiuma died, probably. At around the same time, the people of Hattusha begin to get a general sense that it's just over. The empire's doomed, and the city of Hattusha, in particular, was a bad place to be. Over the course of a few short months, or maybe even quicker, the nobles and important households just vacated, likely moving to seek shelter in other Hittite cities that still stood, like Aleppo, Carchemish, and whatever major vassal cities had yet to be annihilated. With the important folks gone, the regular people didn't stay much longer either, and the city was quickly abandoned. With the idea of the Hittite Empire having flickered out of people's minds, there's just nothing to stop the raiders anymore. And shortly thereafter, it was Cascans, now pillaging completely unopposed, who marched into the mostly derelict city and put it to the torch. With this, the Hittite Empire was dead. But just as the Bronze Age collapse was the end of one story, it's also the beginning of a new and often much more detailed story. These huge population movements will repopulate Anatolia and the Levant with new sets of people, many of whom will play important roles in classical and biblical history. And there will be a remnant of the Hittite Empire living on for a while in the cities of Aleppo and Carchemish. And of course, the coming Iron Age will see the appearance of the biblical kingdom of Israel, which we, you know, can hardly skip over, as well as the rise of the great age of empires in Assyria and Babylon, which is probably going to take a long time to get through. But all of this will have to wait. This is the end of Season 1 of The Oldest Stories. Indeed, when I initially started doing Mesopotamian history on this show, I sort of had the idea that it would just end at the Bronze Age collapse. 
At some point, I decided that there's too much good stuff in the Iron Age, so now the end date for the show will be the final defeat of the Babylonian Empire by the Persians in 539 BCE, giving us another good 600 years or so. A lot of the most famous figures of Mesopotamian history show up around this time, as do some of the most exciting and well-known accounts of history and myth. And so I'm very excited to dig into that stuff and share it with all of you. But not yet. I, personally, am on the verge of a transition in my personal life. Starting a family, a new job, and a few other things I've got going on in my life around now. And I need to step back from the show for an indefinite amount of time. My plan is that hopefully, hopefully, hopefully everything will be settled in a couple months and I'll be able to get back to the show on a regular basis. But honestly, I can't commit to a date for starting Season 2 just yet. And so, if you've gotten this far and are not subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast player or on the Oldest Stories YouTube page or on Facebook... You should get on one of those, because that's how you're going to know when the show is returning. Links to all of these are in the description for the show this week. Meanwhile, I have in mind a number of topics that I would like to cover for special episodes before we get completely out of the Bronze Age. Some stuff that got, you know, overlooked, like a few real nice little texts and some general non-time-specific stuff, like the history of metallurgy, and some stuff that was just on the fringes, like what was going on in Elam and the Levant. And also, I want to put together an overview of the entire Bronze Age as a sort of review of where we've been. Episodes may or may not drip out during this hiatus. I really... I'm really quite busy, I have no idea, but I also like doing this stuff, so we'll see if time pressures and interests, how they balance out. But rest assured that I will be covering everything that seems to me to be even remotely interesting, either in special episodes during the hiatus or when we come back. But the most exciting news in all of this is that when we come back officially, it will be you know, approximately the 100th episode of this show, which is a great time for a special question-and-answer episode. And so, if you have any questions at all about anything that the show has covered or things we haven't covered, there is a place you can submit your questions online at the oldeststories.net website. And I have general contact information there as well if you want to just contact me about anything, aside from the special Q&A episode. Though with everything going on, I can't promise prompt replies to anyone. Anyway, Oldest Stories has quite a lot ahead of it as we move on to some slightly less old stories. I can't guarantee when they'll be coming, but I can promise that they're coming someday. Might be a few months, it might stretch on to more than that, but stay subscribed and your faith will be rewarded. In any case, I am more than honored that so many of you have been willing to stick with me for these 96 episodes already. I know I ramble a bit sometimes and don't really have the highest production values, but I'm so happy that I've been able to share the story of the cradle of civilization with so many people. I know I always say it, but I want you to know that I always mean it. Thank you for listening. <laughs>